Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, March 22nd, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion of Jordan Peele's new film, Us. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Ball. Hello, hello. And Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Okay, guys, uh, you know, Us comes out in theaters today. I think it's probably fair to say that we all like it and that we recommend that everybody out there go see it. Uh, what is going to about to follow is a spoiler-filled discussion on our, you know, we have many opinions. We have questions. We have interpretations. Uh, so what follows is the discussion between us, the, the slash film st- staff that has seen the film but it's going to dive into major spoilers for this film. So I would highly recommend seeing th- this film before listening to this episode. Um, th- there's no reason to listen to this episode before seeing the film. So there you have it. You have been you have been properly warned. Uh, with that, let's start off with our, our brief reaction to the film. I'll get things going and saying... I actually think this movie, Us, is a better horror film than Jordan Peele's Get Out. Uh, I'm not sure it's a better film overall. I feel like this film is maybe not as consistent as Get Out. Um, but I I really uh, like the how the terror and the, the tenseness of this kind of just ratchets up throughout the film. I like uh, – there's so much – um, iconic imagery that he's presenting here that I I, I said on Twitter, it, it's enough for like 50 Mondo posters. Um, I'm not quite sure. I think I'm going to become the dissenter here on this podcast, even though I'd probably give this film like an 8 out of 10, which is a high score. I, I, I am not sure this ending makes a whole lot of sense, and I have so many uh, quibbles with it. I have so many problems with the ending of this film but I still like it, and I still want to see it a second time. Uh, Brad, you just saw this last night. What did you think? Yeah, I just saw this last night, um, and I definitely 
loved it. It is uh, it's a movie that feels more complex than Get Out, and maybe because of that, a little bit messier and not quite as concise. But because it's so much more ambitious and complex, I think that it has maybe a little more to say than Get Out does. And because of that, it may even be somewhat of a better film in in some capacities. Uh, it feels like Jordan Peele like, is already showing you know some evolution as a filmmaker, and it's interesting that he chose to make this movie so open-ended and so like available to be interpreted in a variety of ways. Um, I, I haven't stopped thinking about this movie since I saw it last night and all I could do like on the ride home and even like right before I went to bed was just think of all the different, you know, thematic elements that are in play here and the various symbols and what, just what they mean and how you can tie them to a variety of things from, you know, far back in our past to even things that are happening today. And it's just, it, well, it's get, rich. Get, guess what, Brad, we're going to talk about that right now today. We're going to yeah, dive into just, that. It's so rich. So, so such a rich, uh, deep movie. Um, Jacob, what were your thoughts on us? Oh man, I've uh, I talked about uh, several times in this podcast now because I was at the world premiere at South by Southwest. And Brad, if you've been thinking about this movie for one day, I've been thinking about it nonstop for almost two weeks now. I can't get it out of my mind. I can't wait to see it again. I think this movie is a straight up instant classic. I'm not sure if I like it better than Get Out, but I like it as much as Get Out. And that was my favorite film of the year it came out. I think that Jordan Peele is tapping into the kind of filmmaking that I that connects with me on a personal level. He's he's Rod Serling uh, from the Twilight Zone. If Rod Serling um, was active today, it had absorbed 50 more years of horror influences. Uh, there's, there's Romero in here. There's Wes Craven in here. There's a lot of French uh, New Extremity uh, elements in here. There's Michael Haneke in Funny Games in here. And I feel like normally when we list off influences, it's like filmmakers are paying homage or referencing something they enjoy. Whereas I feel like all these things have filtered through Jordan Peele's work to create something that's so much more than just a list of things he likes. It becomes a fresh new voice. I mean, he's not the new Spielberg. He's not the new Alfred Hitchcock. He's the first Jordan Peele. And that's such an exciting thing to say. Yeah. Uh, ben, your brief thoughts. I really, really love this movie. I We were talking about it uh, amongst ourselves in our Slack channel. And Peter, you and I were, were sort of like lamenting the fact that more movies don't give us the opportunity to dig into them on a thematic level like this one does. And the last movie that I can think of that I was really trying to um, – that I was inspired to analyze and, and really think about as much was probably Darren Aronofsky's Mother – um, so just for, if, if you're still listening to this and you haven't seen the movie yet, if you just wanted to hear our brief thoughts, uh, that's what you're in for is, is a movie that works almost completely on an entirely different level than a lot of stuff that you're seeing in theaters right now. And one of the things that Jacob and I wrote this big joint piece, and we'll link to that in the show notes, but one of the things that we didn't really touch on is how scary this movie is and how intense this movie is. So I'm glad you brought that up, Peter, because I think, you know, as, as much as it works on like an intellectual level. It also works on a really visceral, like frightening level yeah. too. So uh, th- there's a lot to say about this film, yeah, yeah. and it's funny. It's really, really funny. Yeah. Winston Duke is hilarious in this movie, and he just whenever the movie gets too intense, uh, Winston Duke has a line that like that, that lets you have that release. I mean, this combination of thematic intent, like genuinely terrifying horror, and actual character-driven comedy is is so satisfying. We, we never see that. Yeah, yeah I lo- I, in your interview, Jacob, actually, I love that you asked him about Winston Duke's, like, total dad joke, like, persona that he has, because he, he's a bit of a goober dad in this, and you haven't really seen a character like that before played by a black actor like Winston Duke, which is really cool. Um, and I think, like, to, to echo that, too, one of the things that, that adds, you know, the like, an extra layer of comedy, but on a darker level, is having somebody like Tim Heidecker play his friend, who also has a lake house, especially when Tim Heidecker plays his doppelganger, there's something that's really unnerving but also funny about the way he walks around because he's doing almost like this, hey, I'm a cool guy kind of thing, but in the creepiest way possible. And I love that Peel chose Heidecker for that role, knowing how some of the weird things that him and Eric Wareheim have done done on uh, Adult Swim, especially with stuff like their bedtime stories and things like that, because Heidecker can go to some really weird, twisted places, too. Okay, guys, we got to get into the spoilers. We need to start discussing this. Um, I think we need to start at the beginning. Uh, Who are the tethered? Because when I was watching this film, 
it was kind of un- uh, hard to understand the explanation that was coming out of the tethered voice. I'm not sure if it was the screening I was in at the ArcLight. I had I'd heard I had talked to some people that were at South by and had the same problem. So Jacob, who are the tethered? Uh, yeah, this is an interesting question because there is a big exposition jump at the end where Red, the uh, doppelganger played by Lupita Nyong'o, is telling Adelaide, her above-ground counterpart, the story of the Tethered. And because we're hearing this from a person who's literally gone insane, who's been living underground for decades, uh, the, uh, the, the, the answers are intentionally clouded. What we do know is that the Tethered were created as part of a government experiment to control or monitor the human soul in some way. So it's a blend of science fiction because they're like clones, but there's also some unexplained mysticism there in that they're examining something that, you know, it's a cult that goes beyond scientific reasoning. And we do know that the Tethered were abandoned. They were left underneath these, you know, countless tunnels, all of the United States, and left to continue sharing these half-lives with the people above them. They're connected on some kind of spiritual or scientific level that's never fully defined uh, intentionally, uh, where there's where they're sort of echoing the, the the lives of people above them until they gain sentience by red coming down and leading a revolution, and yeah, at first I was wondering too, Peter, did, did I miss something? And I, I I think that it's intentional. I think that Jordan Peele is intentionally giving us an unreliable narration from somebody who maybe herself doesn't fully get it, uh, because the idea of the mystery surrounding them is is a bit more terrifying than having something so sort of spelled out more so. Uh, ben, I want to hear what you think about this because uh, this is the area where I struggled briefly, but also I'm also fine embracing the mystery. But how do you feel? Yeah, I think you covered it pretty well. I think I, I felt like you know these characters are designed by some sort of uh, unexplained scientists in an effort. You know, like you mentioned, there, there's there's a mention of the human soul in there, but it's also it, it seemed like they were designed specifically to control their counterparts above, like in, in the world above, and the experiment just didn't work. And so these people were abandoned and, you know, th- there's so much we can get into in terms of like what that could possibly represent. But I think that's a good, you know, base level of like who they actually are as depicted in the movie. But, but Brad, did you also have like, did you have trouble thinking this out or do you think it was intentional? I mean, you, you saw this in completely different theater than all of us. So how did you read all of this? Yeah, no, I, I didn't really have any trouble understanding that or, or anything like that. Um, I would say the the only thing that like, felt like it was a little bit difficult to hear in the beginning was when red was giving her monologue to the family and explaining like who they were but i think that the ending helped kind of it helped clarify things and even though it's a little bit um i guess perplexing since there's not as many answers explaining that further it, it, if anything it brings up more questions but i don't think it's it's too difficult to get it to get a grasp on and i think it's actually a big part of what makes it so open to interpretation but I, I guess where I kind of get, um, you, you know, this is where it, it kind of stops me a bit, bit because if, you know, they were created by scientists, like, was are there any, like, security guards keeping them below? Like, wh- what is the the security here? I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, it's a very literal question and one worth asking, and I just don't think uh, Peel wants to make a literal film here. I mean, I, I think if you asked him this, he, he himself would shrug it off, which, is, which doesn't mean it's forgivable. Uh, but I, I do think that he's operating in visual metaphor, uh, especially in the back third of this movie. And we'll get to that in a moment, because the, the only thing keeping him out is an escalator, <laughs> which, yeah. I, 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 which, which I do want to talk about, because I actually wrote a bit about this. And so I don't, I'm not so sure if there's actually a satisfying answer to that, Peter. I, I, I think that... I think it, it really is a, a, an extended metaphor, and yeah. I'm not sure you're going to find anything that satisfies you here. And that's not, you know, your fault for wanting that, and it's not the film's fault. I just wonder if it's just you you having different priorities as someone who consumes stories and the stories Jordan Peele wants to tell. But I'm not sure. See, I, I feel I feel like if the movie started out giving us something that like kind of gave us the idea that it was not going to be based in a logic of reality. I, and I, I, I do understand that these doubles appear, you know, 30 minutes into this film, but I don't know. I'm having a little bit of trouble there, but on the other side of things, I love chewing on these interpretation, you know, like, like the readings of this film and trying to figure out uh, some of the stuff. So it's not that it, 
you know, makes me dislike this film. It's just I, I think a lot of more logical people are going to have a problem with there being no explanation to the how that world under there works. Yeah, Brad, what did you think about that? Did you were you able to sort of like draw a line in your mind and and just like accept the fact that most of this is is just like allegory or were you, you know, cuz I, I mean, for me it's like if this were any other movie, I feel like I would be asking those same questions, but for some reason it all just worked for me and I didn't I didn't find myself distracted by wondering about, you know, the the actual um functionality of like the the tethered world underneath what, what did you how did how did you land on that yeah i think the allegory does um the strength of it is enough to kind of make you forget about those kinds of things but i also feel like there's enough of a gap and enough unknown as far as like the events um that unfold that you don't really need a, a specific answer to those questions like especially if this is some kind of was some kind of secret you know uh government project science experiment whatever like it would have been the kind of thing that was just abandoned. So, of course, well, there's, why, why didn't they like destroy them? Why didn't they kill them? They could have like, you know, put a gas bomb underneath there or something. Like. I mean, I feel like maybe there is probably some kind of moral hesitation to <laughs> killing a bunch of people, even though they didn't have souls, apparently. Uh, so I feel like. <laughs> yeah, but these I, are people that created people without souls. Yeah, but they're also they would be systematically be destroying what pretty much the population of the entire world, right? Yeah, <laughs> or, at least, or, at least, or at least America. Anyway, we don't know if this is a a global you know situation. Um, also, it's so much more American to try to forget about your problems and hide it away than deal with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. And I and I and I also think and I think that is totally what ties back into it is this idea of that you you make these mistakes and you think that everything's fine because you've left it behind and it's in the past now, but that's exactly what comes back to haunt you in the end. Well, it's interesting that you say it's so much more American because this movie is called Us, and we'll talk about, you know, what does that mean, but uh, Us could mean ourselves. It could also mean the United States, and I wanted to ask you guys, what do the tethered represent? And uh, I want to start with Ben on that one. So I know that a lot of people are probably going to just tune out uh, when I when I raise this point, but I'm going to do it anyway, because this is like my entire read of the movie. So my thing is, I, I feel like this is the first really overtly political mainstream studio movie that we've gotten in the Trump era. I know that uh, a lot of, you know, because we've been so inundated with the insanity of the news of the past few years, we've been putting these reads on a lot of the movies that have come out over the past couple of years, uh, just because that's the lens through which we're viewing society in the world right now. But a lot of those movies were in development before the 2016 election. But us, this movie, uh, was almost entirely conceived after that happened and, and like within this era that we're living in right now. And I feel like the tethered sort of represent the, like the modern Republican party, there's uh, they're, they're a united front in, in direct opposition to uh, what you could say that the Democrats are right now, which is like sort of a, there's a little bit of squabbling and infighting going on. Um, and I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll touch on some more specific reasons why this is my read as we go through this, but that's my general thing. And I know that even Jordan Peele himself has said, some things that sort of uh, contradict this, but I think, you know, as we've talked about several times before in this podcast, like once a movie is out there, it's up to us to sort of uh, apply our own interpretations to it. And it's not necessarily just like the filmmaker gets to determine what people think about his or her movie. So, um, yeah, the, I mean, one of the things really quickly is, is that when uh, in that scene that Brad was talking about when Red and Adelaide are talking in the, the living room and they're basically asking, like, who are you? What What is going on? Red answers, we are Americans. And the tethered have, have sort of been there all along. They look just like us, but they're they've been unlocked. They've been um, released into the world in a way that I feel like mirrors what we've seen over the past few years. Yeah, I, I, I don't think. You can have a line like that in a movie and it not have some kind of political interpretation, right? Um, yeah. And it, oh, go ahead, Peter. I was going to say, Jacob, you have a whole other reading of who the tethered are. Yeah, I mean, and what's crazy about my reading is that it is it's like a, it's like a cousin to Ben's, but like a very different cousin from a different different area of the country, <laughs> because whereas uh, Ben sees 
this movie is it being about people who feel they've been forgotten and overlooked, you know, people who voted for Trump. I see it's about people who actually truly are forgotten and overlooked. I see it as people who are, you know, uh, minorities, who are homeless, who are, you know, in poverty, people who, ha- who have slipped through a so- so- social safety net and just have to watch as people above them prosper and prosper and prosper. And all, and all they can do is just suffer and dream of a life they can only imitate. And, you know, eventually, you know, something's got to break. You know, there's going to be that French Revolution moment where people rise up to take what is theirs back. So I think any way you look at it, uh, the tethered are the forgotten corners of America. But whether those corners are, you know, a poor black neighborhood, you know, a homeless shelter or, you know, a red state where people see Trump as a savior. I feel like that they stand in for people who feel like America has failed them and that there's a whole other half of the world who they have to blame yeah i i i i think align more with your view on this as much as i love ben's take on this i think yeah i think this is more in line with what i i see jordan peele going for um with this film uh brad where do you fall in your interpretation uh, i really like both of those takes and kind of one thing that i found myself drawn to and thinking of uh kind of does have ties with ties to what jacob and ben said but also kind of takes it onto a more uh, international scale and this I, this idea of um, sort of how we treat people in other countries and how America has tried to make other countries better by trying to install democracy in them, but then ultimately leaving them behind and leaving them to be forgotten. Um, specifically, like I found myself thinking of, especially with the framing of a this sort of government experiment trying to help these people of how our own government has created some of the biggest problems that we have today ourselves because of our forgetting like that we need to take care of people. Um, I, I specifically thought of how the um, uh, we the movie Charlie Wilson's War is about the idea of the government helping Afghani freedom fighters. Uh, against the Soviets. But then once that battle was over and they helped them win, they didn't stick around to create infrastructure in Afghanistan. Uh, They didn't do anything to actually help the people by giving them schools or anything like that after that. And the result of that was the creation of the Taliban, which obviously came back to haunt us in the form of 9-11 and, you know, various terrorist uh, attacks. And something similar happened in the way that the government created the problem of drug cartels in Mexico by having the CIA secretly feed them, supply them with weapons. And now that's become this big focus. Surprisingly enough, one of the big focuses of the Trump administration in trying to stop immigration. And I think it's interesting that you have this group of people, the tethered, uh, as a group of people who were created by a government experiment, left behind. And the way that they get back into uh, our world is through these tunnels, which is how some people, you know, actually do immigrate into America. And so I, I feel like there's something to be said here about and this this entire group of other people who have been forgotten, who are promised something by America and its government and now have turned it, you know, and now have become these villains, essentially, who are now rising and taking taking us on. And it's also interesting to me that they, these people, the tethered, are being kept in these bunkers and in these rooms that very much resemble where you know the immigrants have been held, especially you know in headlines from today. Um, so so yeah, and I think that there's also ties that can be made to the the idea of this cyclical um, feeling of America feeling so much pride in abolishing slavery and using the Underground Railroad to free slaves, but now we're using similar tunnels and systems to keep these people. Uh, hidden and lo- and locked up for what would have been uh, you know our own purposes, mm. um, and I think that that also ties into just a little aesthetic thing too. If you look at the title uh, treatment for us, the curve on the the front part of the U circles back around into itself, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. This is that's really smart, Brad. That's so different than the, than the concepts that Ben and I have, and it, 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 it all works. Yeah, it, all, all these things work on. Uh, from their own perspectives. I love that. Well, I definitely think he is playing around with the Underground Railroad here a little bit. Um, I think that's definitely intentional in my mind. Uh, but we need to move on. We, there's so much we need to cover here. Uh, I think we need to talk about this final tragic twist where uh, the, the two girls switch with each other when they're younger. Um, this is something that's revealed very late in the movie. 
And when it was revealed, I, I sat there in the theater wondering to myself. At first, I was like, oh, my God, like, I didn't see that coming. And uh, then after that, you know, the surpri- the euphoria of surprise swelled a little or, you know, uh, died down a little. I started thinking to myself, what it, what does this mean for the story? Like, how does this change the story? Does it make the story not make any sense? Does it improve the story? And I'm still kind of chewing on that. I'm still trying to figure out, like, what does this mean? Like, after they switched, who was controlling who at that point? Was anybody controlling who? Uh, Does, you know, now that she is above ground, does she now have a soul? Jacob, what what are your thoughts on the the final twist? And I I think that the uh, final twist here works on two levels, both the thematic level and on the plot level. I'm going to start with theme uh, here, and that is... The very concept of a tethered who's presented as being, you know, this person who can't speak, who can barely move, who's like a pale imitation of a human being, just simply going to the surface and being taken with the family and giving all the opportunities a quote unquote regular human would have. And, you know, raising a family and getting married and having being successful, living this very comfortable middle class existence. I mean, it's the concept of it it really literalizes the concept of privilege, which is all the people underground, all these tethered who have no opportunities, when one of them gets an opportunity, when, when one of them gets a chance on that level playing field, uh, she becomes the protagonist of the movie, her the hero of the story, and someone who we did not even notice or know was from there. So that, once again, feeds into the idea of, of forgotten people being given the privilege that we take for granted. And Jordan Peele discusses this a little bit in the interview that I did with him, and that's I'll put that on the site. But also on a plot level, um, this works for me because if you go back and really think about all the previous scenes between Red and Adelaide, it really changes uh, all the horror into something profoundly tragic, <laughs> deeply sad. Uh, and that is when we first, especially the opening, uh, not opening, the opening moments of the uh, siege in the house, where we see Adelaide terrified when we think that she has ptsd she's anxious we see this terrifying figure attacking her for no reason and tormenting her once we know this information that scene no, is no longer a random act of violence it is a woman who is deeply wronged who has every reason to seek revenge uh and acting on it and, and and the woman who is terrified is not terrified uh for no reason she's terrified because she's been caught because she's been found out because her past sins have caught up with her and it's just this cycle of loathing and this cycle of uh, if I had what you had, you know, I could have done better. I could have, I could have been you. Why did you take this from me? We, we're the same. And I, Jordan, Jordan Peele in an interview, uh, talked about Universal Monsters and how tragic they are, and how Red is very much a, if Get Out was his Frankenstein, this is his Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The idea of two sides of the same person just being presented differently. But what do you, what do you guys think about this? I think it works perfectly for me. But I want to hear from you guys. I actually I I like the that idea of like these two these two characters being very much the same if they were each given the same opportunities and how uh Red who you know essentially becomes Adelaide has the life that uh Adelaide would have had if she wasn't switched out and put down with the rest of the tethered and I think that I, what I like about that most is it all it kind of actually spoke speaks more to my interpretation too on this this level of thinking of the tethered as immigrants, because all these people who exist outside the U.S. who want to come to the United States, they are just like us. They they want the same kind of life that we have. They want the same kind of freedom. They want to feel safe, and they're they're not, they're not different than us simply because they they live in a different country. And it, it reminded me of um, the ending of the movie The Kingdom, directed by Peter Berg, which was is actually one of my favorite post 9/11 movies, uh, because the end, as kind of, kind of completely unsubtle as it is. It says a lot about the the similarities between us and the people that we, you, we often view as as enemies. Um, because at the very end, you, you have a juxtaposed to these two scenes where Jamie Foxx had uh, consoled somebody whose spouse died in a terrorist attack. And Jason Bateman asks him what he whispered into her ear in order to calm her down. And he says, I told him that we were going to kill them all. And it, it's juxtaposed with a scene where the... Um, w- uh, mother of a a son whose grandfather was just killed by American forces asked him what his grandfather said to him right before he died. And he says, he says, I says, don't worry, we'll kill them all. And so you have both of these sides with the same perspective, both of these sides of people who want the same thing for, for themselves. 
and you realize there's not much difference between us. And the idea of treating, you know, another group of people entirely differently and not understanding that they're just like us is, I think, exactly what this movie is trying to go for. Let's talk about how our fears play into this movie and how this movie obsessed with fears. Jacob, you wrote a whole bit about this in in that article that we're going to link in the show notes. And I would re- really recommend everybody read because we're not touching on even half of what the stuff is in there. And I feel like people are going to come out of this movie and be confused. Send this article around to your friends. This article is you know one of the best things we've published in the year. So uh, check it out. But uh, this is also also one of the things that one of the only themes that we know for sure that Jordan Peele is actually playing with. So what, what do we know, Jacob? Yeah, uh, Jordan Peele's been extremely cagey about discussing uh, details. Even when I interviewed him, he seemed like very on edge when I asked if he could talk spoilers. Uh, the interview ended up being spoiler-free, <laughs> that's why. Uh, but directly after the premiere at South by Southwest, he took the stage, and he was very open about one aspect. I'm going to quote him from this premiere uh, Q&A. We are in a time where we fear the other, whether it's the mysterious invader who might kill us or take our jobs, or the faction that doesn't live near us uh, that votes differently than we did. Maybe the evil is us. Maybe the monster that we're looking for has our face. And that is extremely on point and feeds into a lot of what we've been talking about this entire show so far, uh, which is that Americans have to, you know, have, have a habit of labeling good and bad, good and evil. There's a good guy, there's a bad guy. We don't see shades of gray. We see our neighbor as our friend or our enemy. We see our neighbor as a terrorist or an ally. And in the, even in that quote, he doesn't specify which side is evil, uh, because even in the film, we see the Wilson family. They get they're just as good at killing tethered as the tethered are killing them. I mean, both sides have a lot of blood on their hands when the credits roll. Uh, but Ben, I want to hear what you think about this. You add a little bit more. Yeah, he also talked about how the movie is about generational trauma. And and he said uh, this idea that what happens in our ancestry or what happens to the generation before us affects us and sort of trickles down. And I think you can see that in the actual text of the movie, not only with the application of Adelaide and Red and, and the trauma that they experienced and and uh, that switch and everything happening like in the, in the final twist you guys were just talking about, but also in the in the children too like the the wilson's daughter zora played by shahadi wright joseph um she grabs a golf club and just you know she seems to really really love just destroying the tether like she seems to take an almost like uh an almost joyful approach to uh wiping out these people who are threatening her family and and it reminded me a lot of Arya stark from game of thrones where she's she's lost her innocence but that traumatic event that of, of you know having these people break into her home and threaten her family seems to have sort of sort of like unlocked this thing in her where she is maybe like a little bit too into the idea of of vengeance and violence and i think that's like a a literal example of this generational trauma taking place in the film yeah, I think we should move on to the haves and have nots that like, you know, throughout this film, there's characters talking about things that they don't have. And uh, Jacob, you were the first one to actually bring this up to me. I at first when I was watching this in in the theater, I just thought that was just very insightful, um, you know, character uh, work from Jordan Peele of, you know, uh, uh, him, you know, his character basically complaining about, you know, how his friend got the car and stuff like that. But that plays into a bigger theme, obviously. Yeah, uh, we meet not only the Wilsons, but their friends, the Tylers. The Tylers are a white family who have the nicer lake house, the nicer boat, the nicer car. And throughout the rest throughout the entire movie, you know, uh, Adelaide and uh, and her husband Gabe are, are just sort of, are sort of like um. And we're doing well. We have food on the table. We have nothing to worry about. They always have the nicer things. I mean, he even bought the flare gun for his new boat. And I forgot the flare gun. And it's really good character work. It's really funny. Then once you realize that it, it's Peel is setting up the idea of that somebody always has more than you. Somebody's always going to make you jealous. Somebody has the life you want, the boat you want, the house you want. And the the tethered, they are the ultimate have-nots. They're the people who are, can only exist in a, in a shadow of, of a life. They have to look up at even a middle-class existence and say, that is uh, unobtainable. Why, why can't I have this? And that's why when, when you know, Tim Heidecker's ver- tethered version of himself kills his counterpart, like, immediately puts on his bathrobe. It's why Abraham, the tethered version of Gabe, drives a boat. They're, they're, they're trying to claim the things they don't have, the things they've always wanted, the things they've been out of reach. 
And Jordan Peele touched on this when I talked to him. Uh, I'm going to read from my interview with him real quick. Uh, the idea that, ha- that that part of having privilege, especially in this country, seems to be we don't consider it unearned. We have this legacy culture where we don't acknowledge the people who have and do suffer for us and uh, to have the things we take for granted. I think we look in the movie in terms of nationality, which is certainly my jumping off point, or class or race or haves and have-nots. Uh, however you look at this movie, the common factor to me is that the haves feel like we deserve, and we confuse the idea of privilege and deserving. Uh, Brad, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely think that that is that, that resonated with me too. Is I, I knew that there was something with uh, this family kind of being a little bit covetous of what Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss's family had, and this uh, this idea of you know thinking that you deserve more and, and wanting more. And I even think that it's this this whole idea of distraction too, of like taking away of the things that are supposed to be really important to you. And I think that even ties into um, the scene that I thought it's it's a funny scene when it when it plays out. And it creates this um, this idea in the movie of suspense is when uh, after they've uh, taken care of the of Tim Heidecker's doppelganger family's doppelgangers and they're trying to escape in their car, they have this whole argument of like who's going to drive, and it, it's very funny, but it's also very suspenseful because the same you're like you're like stop arguing and drive, and I think it's this whole idea of like we, uh, maybe a little bit of commentary even that we get stuck on these stupid little details and things that we can't stop arguing and being petty about when there's this much larger problem at hand that really should be the primary concern instead of arguing about who's going to drive the damn car. (laughs) That's actually a fantastic insight that I didn't even think about that that scene could have a greater interpretation. Um, I think we should move on to the escalator. Let's talk about the escalator. Because, uh, you know, I know this escalator is the only thing preventing the tethered from getting up into our world, which seems like, you know, I've climbed up an escalator that's going down. Seems like it would be very easy. Uh, What do you think it is that causes Red or I guess Adelaide? It's a little confusing on who to, you know, the, the names here. To actually go up and meet the other, you know, back in the the that uh what eighties flashback. Yeah, um, yes, guys, an interesting thing because in a movie that feels very indebted to the Twilight Zone, this is the most Rod Serling moment. Yeah. This, is the, this is the sledgehammer uh, instead of the scalpel, and I mean, it really feeds into my interpretation of things because it, an escalator goes down, it does not go up, and even you could run up it, you know, it's difficult. And this is, you know, a government installation, people living out of out of sight. The only thing keeps them out is a machine that is literally built to go down and keep someone from rising above their station. So as an extended metaphor, it really works beautifully. The idea that um, someone be able to slip through that, somebody be able to um, break the system only when there's a chance, only when something goes wrong can a person slip up the escalator and, you know, get the chance that somebody else has. And I, for me, it's just this uh, really, really uh, on the nose, but in a really good way, uh, symbol, symbol for how, you know, people always say, why don't you get a better job? Why don't, why don't you move out of that bad neighborhood? And it's not that easy. It, it is, there are institutions in place that make it extremely difficult for people who are in poor situations to, uh, to, to get out of that. It, 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 and, it, and the system is rigged against them. Uh, but Ben, I know that when we talk about the escalator, you talk about some other visuals, uh, some other like not so subtle visuals or even subtle ones that stood out to you. So I want to open the floor to see what things jumped out at you and for Brad and Peter, what little things here like resonated with you? Yeah, like sort of going along with what Brad mentioned before with the, the scene about driving the car, which I, I hadn't even thought about. And I, I really like that read on it. There's a moment where the Wilson family is watching this news broadcast and this woman is being interviewed on screen. It all it all happens off screen. Like we're, we're watching them watching the TV. So we don't actually see the TV in this moment. But uh, this this woman on screen says uh, she, that she's seeing red, which is a phrase that's associated with anger. And in terms of my read, also red is the color that's often associated with the, uh, the Republican Party. Um, and the interviewer on TV like follows up with her and, and she clarifies that she the witness the, the people that she's seeing the tethered who are killing people up above are wearing red. But I don't I don't think that was actually a slip up. I, I sort of read that as like, you know, the phrase seeing red, like I mentioned, is, is associated with anger. And I think there's this little commentary there, this mini commentary within all of this other huge allegorical stuff that we're talking about, about outrage culture and how how easy it is for us to really get angry and sort of point our fingers at, at the other side without taking 
stock of how we are uh, maybe contributing to larger problems at all. And that's something that Peel has, has talked about too, like examining our part in evil as a society. Um, and there are a couple more little ones that I'll mention, but uh, in, in the interest of keeping this relatively short, that's the one I, I that sort of jumped out to me during the movie. And um, I don't know, Peter, did you notice any, uh, any many moments within the movie that sort of spoke to you on that level? Um, not the, not, not besides the ones that have been mentioned already. Um, I know you were talking, you also mentioned, uh, the shirt. Oh yeah. Yeah. Adelaide, you know, she's, she's wearing this white shirt, um, throughout the movie. It's like a, like a sweater almost, but yeah. as the film progresses, it gets covered with blood. Like it, it's, it starts to turn red over the course of the movie. And that yeah. sort of leads to, uh, you know, it's like, a, it's foreshadowing the ultimate reveal that she was, you know, technically one of the tethered the whole time but sort of like leading this revolution that jacob's been talking about i do i know when when this movie got over when it when it finished i i turned over to uh, i turned to you because you were sitting next to me in the theater and i said you know what is jeremiah eleven eleven? because we see that uh i guess homeless man holding up a sign at um the santa cruz boardwalk when she's a kid and then when they arrive there you know decades later we see what, apparently the same guy, much older, being carted off. He he is he is now dead. Um, so w- what does eleven eleven have to do with this movie, Jacob? Uh, well, there actually is a biblical quote, which I'll leave for Ben because when I was doing my research, uh, I I'd forgotten entirely about the Jeremiah eleven eleven sign, but I remember the tethered attack begins at eleven eleven p.m. at night. So I was googling around on that, and in New Age philosophy and numerology. 1111 is seen as a warning or, or a sign of something terrible to happen. Or some people uh, uh, say it's a heavy influence on the theory of synchronicity, which suggests that events are meaningful coincidences if they occur with no causal relationship, yet seem to be meaningfully related, which means that sometimes events happen because they're related through, uh, through a basic idea and not because they're actually caused by one another, which I feel like there's something there <laughs> we can wrap our brain around, the idea of of uh, the tethered attack happening not because above grounders did anything literally, but because they represent something. Uh, but there actually is the more literal read, which is uh, Ben. You actually pulled out a Bible, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, the uh, Jeremiah eleven eleven says. Therefore, this is what the Lord says: I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. So, in addition to that sort of synchronicity stuff, which I also you know, remember that scene where the uh, the frisbee lands directly on that circle on their blanket on the beach. I think that yeah. sort of speaks as well to that synchronicity. I wonder if somebody could zoom in on a character's watch. During that scene, I wonder if it would read 1111 a.m. at that exact moment. That would be really fascinating. But um, but yeah, you know, there's some classic Old Testament doom and gloom stuff there, too. Like I'll bring on them a disaster they can't escape and they'll cry out, but I'm not going to listen. That's like some pretty serious stuff. And it, it reminded me of that great, great shot of Elizabeth Moss's tethered character trying to scream when she realizes what's happened to her her twisted family. And she doesn't have the voice to make that to make a sound like she tries to scream, but nobody's listening. And uh, yeah, I think that that sort of factors into that uh, Bible verse reading as well. I I still have not heard a great explanation of the Bible verse. Brad, do you have any take on that or? I mean, the Bible verse I feel like is it's, it's fairly self-explanatory in that it's this idea um, of that, like the, the the thing that we can't escape is, ourselves and you know some something some or something or somebody even as powerful as god isn't even going to save us from destroying ourselves um and that's literally exactly what we're doing every day by you know keeping people from you know achieving what what they want and like having a system that uh you know as the the escalator represents is made to only keep them you know down in in a certain certain area like where where we want them see i feel like this is one of the most obvious uh, clues that Jordan Peele gives us in this film. Um, it's kind of the most, um, uh, yeah, it's really in your face. And I still don't think we've quite connected at all, even though, I don't know, it, it's, I feel like this reading is too obvious. Maybe, 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 I don't know, maybe we are reading far too much into this film, but I don't know. Jordan Peele seems like such a smart guy. It's, it's, some of the stuff seems so ingrained in it. Um, I do want to talk about the dance um, because I'm really 
trying to figure out what is going on with this dance is um is one of these characters controlling the other is uh obviously you know the people underground the tethered are become inspired to join this revolution because of this dance but who, who is dancing jacob Oh, this is a really good question. This is a moment that we talked about on a previous Skype call when we were playing this article because this is maybe the most important scene in the movie, but also the toughest one to crack. Because we see this dance sequence cut between uh, Adelaide above ground and Red among the tethered. And normally when we see the tethered mimicking a the humans above, it's in this shambling, half-hearted way where they don't get the movement right, where it feels like they don't quite understand how people move. And maybe because Red Underground is from above ground, but um, or Adelaide, but Adelaide, who is above ground and has all of Red's opportunities, is dancing beautifully. And below ground, you know, Red is dancing beautifully. And for the first time, all the tethered team to take notice of what's in the room with them instead of what is, you know, instead of what they're connected to above. And I, and I feel like this is a key moment because what do the tethered see? Do they see that? hey, we can do what they can do? What separates us if we can also do that down here? Why are we going through the motions when we can create the same beautiful things they can create? Ben, I know that when we talked earlier, you mentioned the idea of the creation of art, the creation of, of, of individuality being key here. I want you, I want to hear you uh, talk about that. Yeah, and maybe Brad can help me out here because he's seen it more recently than, than I have. But Brad, do you remember if in that dance scene where it's cross-cutting between the two dances, it, is it an exact copy of the dance the is it the same dance above and below because i feel like it's slightly different do, do you remember it seemed like it was the same to me and maybe it only felt different just because the the tether don't move in exactly the same fashion as above it's a little bit more i guess um like spindly and like like they're almost <clears> like <throat> a mar- marionette kind of you yeah. know m- mimicry of it but I, I think that it's 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 pretty close if i recall Okay, well, yeah, either way, I mean, I think the, yeah, I looked at that dance as like this act of creating art that, and and that is a thing that um, that sort of broke through. And it's almost like if the souls, you know, th- there's this talk in the movie about two bodies were created, but only one soul exists. And let's pretend the, for the sake of this argument that all of the souls are with the people above ground. But Adelaide uh, or Red underneath, like creating this, this dance um it seemed like the tethered that that was like a one the one opportunity that the tethered uh witnessed where this this independent act of of art creation managed to like shine the soul through to them and it uh you know it, it seemed to sort of snap the hypnosis of the whole thing and there's this this shot right afterwards where all of the tethered are gathered around her and their arms are outstretched almost if like she's like a like a savior figure that they that they want to touch, like Jesus walking down the streets of of Jerusalem or something. And you know, talking about that Bible verse, Jeremiah eleven eleven, the two verses that bookend that they talk about uh, people worshiping false gods. And that image of the tethered reaching out to red like that struck me as like, you know, you're worshiping a false god in this scenario. Like she, maybe red is one of those characters, a leader whose plan, you know, ultimately results in just death and destruction everywhere. And that that. Uh, yeah, that, that's what I was struck by, by that so, whole thing. So is Trump the false god in your interpretation? Yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's talk about the rabbits, because this movie opens up with this shot that zo- uh, it, it pulls back from this wall of caged rabbits. At first, it's all white rabbits, and then we start to see like a brown or black rabbit in there, and there's another brown or black rabbit. At first, I thought this was saying something about race. Uh, later on, we, we get to see that these rabbits are roaming free throughout the undergrounds. Uh, it's one of those uh, iconic uh, bits of imagery that I think we'll, be, we'll, we'll see on posters from like Mondo in, in future years. Um, what do the rabbits have to do here? I mean, I guess my first thought is, you know, they could be food for the people down there. But uh, why even explain that if you're not going to explain the other nitpicky problems I have with how the whole underground world works, Jacob? Like, what what are the rabbits? See, my initial reaction to this uh, was that, oh, clearly it's a scientific research facility. Clearly they had rabbits and were experimenting on rabbits first. That's why there are rabbits everywhere because they're easy to experiment on. They breed very quickly. 
And when the whole thing was abandoned, the rabbits were let loose and they bred like rabbits. And now they're everywhere and they the only thing that tethered have to eat. And I thought, oh, that's a creepy enough explanation. It's a, it's a cool visual. It makes sense. But then Ben had to come along with this theory that is so good. I'm going to give him the floor right now. Uh, so I, I felt like the entire underground uh, series of tunnels and all of that stuff was a stand-in for the internet. It's it's like a, an unseen world that we that lives just below the surface of the visible one. And these rabbits, to me, represent ideas. Like the, the opening shot that you're talking about, Peter, where uh, all of these rabbits, they're in these individual cages, right? And the camera's slowly pulling back, realizing like all of these ideas are walled off from one another and, and sort of sequestered in their own areas. But later in the movie, when these cages are opened, these rabbits are let loose and they're they're just wandering all throughout the series of hallways and they're jumping in and out of doors and spreading quickly. And, and like Jacob mentioned, rabbits proliferate pretty much uncontrollably. And, you know, the movie opens, remember, with these few lines of text about how the, there's this really, uh, there's these network of tunnels underneath the ground and, Late in the movie, these tunnels just seem to like really, really go on forever. It's almost like that, like a Kubrickian sort of shot where they just stretch out into infinity, which to me represented like this vastness of the Internet and and these these rabbits, these ideas jumping out of these doors on either side. The entire thing just really like struck me as like, wow, this is like the perfect visual metaphor for something like YouTube where there's, you know, radicalization happens where these algorithms feed people uh, and and these people are ravenously hungry for ideas. And that's where you're talking. That's where you're talking about, like, why would you why would Jordan Peele show these people eating these rabbits raw? I think they're hungry for for height, uh, for knowledge, for ideas, for for depth. And they're getting it in the form of these raw ideas. And um, yeah, that's a, that, that was my read on that. Yeah, uh, and the uh, with a shot of the sun at the very end, he, he's he's driving away with a new idea in his hands, right? Yeah, yeah. The the kid Jason, the the younger son, um, he picks up a rabbit and he he brings it into the paramedic vehicle with the family at the very end. And I I, I was I'm still sort of wrestling. I want to see the movie again because I want to know like what you know that that final final reaction that Peter I think you were talking about before where Adelaide realizes who she is as she's driving away. She has this little like half smirk almost on her face. And the kid, Jason, is in the front seat and he looks over at her and he smuggled in a rabbit into that vehicle. Like, is he infected by that idea or is he enlightened by that idea? I feel like there's there's something there, too. Yeah, um, probably has nothing to do with anything. But that kid also the whole movie is trying to play with this like prop from a magic kit from the that summer house and uh, rabbits have a, something to do with magic so I'm wondering if there's anything mystical to be said there but I, I've not been able to connect any any dots there uh, I, thought, I thought about that too Peter um, uh, one th- one thing that I thought about with the rabbits it's, it's something that I haven't really quite locked down into like a, a solid theory necessarily but I think there's some some connection to be made is that um, in religion, rabbits are seen as a symbol of rebirth and resurrection, which is why there's a link for uh, bunnies to Easter and the resurrection of Jesus. And part of me wondered if the, if all of the rabbits uh, in cages and whatnot were maybe used as the experiment to help create these clones. And like that, that something with rabbits like tied to the idea of rebirth and resurrection is what helped them uh, create them, but there was some disconnect, and so like the the souls, you know, w- w- weren't there. And so, so I'm I, obviously it's just it's a small connection. I'm not necessarily sure how it ties into the the overarching, uh, you know, idea of what the movie represents. But there's there's that. That's a cool little tidbit. Um, let's talk about the red jumpsuits and the scissors. I know this is something that David Chen, who I saw the screening with, he had a lot of trouble with. I, I know this is probably some of the most iconic imagery from this movie comes from, you know, the tethered wearing these matching outfits. Uh, so, Jacob, where did they get all these props? <laughs> this is uh, a really fun thing to talk about because this is the kind of thing where I thought about this, but I also had no problem disregarding it. But I also understand that, you know, you and Dave and other people are going to have this logical question. So my logical answer is if there is a tethered for every single person in the United States, there had to be some kind of janitor and they had to get, they probably got those janitorial uniforms from the storage rooms and they collected some uniforms. That's my official answer for matching uniforms. But my, my uh, real answer But there's answer not to that, that many janitors in the United <laughs> States. That does not make any sense, Jacob. I'm it does sorry. not. 
my, my actual answer. And, and is when, that when, it, when did they have time to uh, spray paint uh, metal <laughs> uh, scissors into gold scissors? Like, what, what, and why? why? Why would they want gold scissors? My my actual answer is that it's because it looks scary, and Jordan Peele knows it looks scary. <laughs> but uh, he actually has Jordan Peele actually addresses scissors. Uh, in, in, he, in an interview, he said, "There's a duality to scissors: a whole made up of two, a whole made up of two parts, but also they lie in this territory between the mundane and the absolutely terrifying." So I feel like the idea of scissors being two identical pieces that cause you know damage things. And also the idea of red jumpsuits being something that you wear when you want to be seen. You don't wear a red jumpsuit when you want to hide. You want to make sure people see your message. I feel like from, on the metaphorical standpoint, Peter, I, could, I will say, yeah, this works entirely. But I do not have a good logical answer. And I, I apologize for, for, for not having one for you. Brad, do you have my, any My logical answer would be that maybe the red jumpsuits were the uniform of everybody who worked on this project and was around in, in the tunnels, which is why there are so many of them. Um, or that maybe they were intended uh, to be made for those the, the people that they were that were being kept down there anyway. Um, but uh, and then as far as the But I feel like if it was intended for them, it it makes less of a you know, it's less of a message if they're putting on the suits that they were, you know, cre- created for them. I feel like they're they're there's an act of uh, disobedience and th- them coming out at the end of this movie, right? That's that's fair. Um, and then maybe with the scissors, uh, there's a lot of rabbits down there, and maybe there was tons of scissors <laughs> so they could keep keep the rabbit for trimmed. <laughs> Okay, I think we need to move past this because either you're going to accept this as, you know, for what we're doing. We're diving into these kind of um, interpretations of the movies and you, you kind of have to accept on that level and not uh, at face value, I think. Uh, but it's still going to bother me, guys. It's still like it still doesn't quite make sense. But the last thing I wanted to talk about, and we only have time for one last thing, is the Hands Across America. This is something that uh what took place in the like 80s uh 1986 uh what is going on here ben so this is the one area where i especially since we're running out of time on this podcast i want to drive people to this article and and have them read about how because i really like uh the hands across america imagery and how it ties into my larger thing but i want people to read read about it on this piece but jacob i think your yours is probably safe for podcast discussion do you want to talk about your interpretation and how that ties in here uh yeah um i guess my, my main thing is that uh for the Trust miracle happened on may 26 uh, 1986 and the goal was that for 10 bucks you can go stand in line and form a continuous line across the united states the idea was to uh, it'll be celebrity sponsored there'd be you know huge events surrounding it it would raise money to fight hunger and fight homelessness but once all was said and done, once everybody was paid, once organization stuff was all put through, less than half of the $34 million raise actually went to hunger and homelessness. In other words, it was just an empty gesture so people who already had money could feel good about themselves <laughs> while the actual problems remained completely unfixed. And uh, Peel addressed this, t- t- speaking to Ebony, he said, Hands Across America was a demonstration that holds the duality of America uh, in it perfectly symbolically for me, the hope. If we hold our hands, we'll cure homelessness, we'll cure hunger, is well intended. But what was the solution? Or was that just a way of not actually dealing with it? So the idea of young Red uh, uh, seeing a commercial for Hands Across America in the very first scenes of the movie and having this idea of this you know, symbol that can change things, uh, she, she doesn't see what the, the results of this after decades. So she's stuck underground, bringing all the tethered up with her you know, and making this grand statement, this grand stunt, this like evil, naive parody of a completely ineffectual thing that's been relegated to trivia because it actually did so little. It represents, you know, America in a nutshell, which is we're going to make a big, loud, flashy statement, but what next? What happens now? We still have the mess, and it's going to get worse. Okay. We have hit the the wall. This is where we end with you. Uh, you can read the whole article uh, from Jacob and Ben on the site. We'll link in the show notes. I'll also include links uh, to uh, my spoiler-free reaction with David Chen. So if you want to hear his thoughts on this, your interview with Jordan Peele, and uh, some other coverage from this film, you'll find that all in the show notes. And uh, obviously, you can find all of us every day on SlashFilm.com. This podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published 
every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter.com. So if you have some kind of crazy interpretation that we we overlooked or like pieces of this movie, uh, moments from this movie, send it to us at peter.com and maybe we can read these on Monday or Tuesday. Uh, and uh, please head on over to our iTunes page, rate and review this podcast, uh, tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Monday. That was very good, guys. I I okay. think um, the insight on this this episode will really be a value to people, and I hope uh, I hope to share it with their friends. I hope so too. I would like that.